And welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are our Transfer Market Insiders and Pundits Extraordinaire, Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, Julian Lopetegui is a man under fire at the Bernabeu as results go from bad to worse. What's gone wrong and who will replace him has Real Madrid looked to Conte, Wenger, Jardim and Blanc to bring the thunder back. As Manchester United gear up to resume their Champions League campaign, Pep Guardiola has issued a rallying call to fans asking them to help the team hit top form with Roche's backing. We assess the strategy behind Pep's comments and look at City's readiness to take the Champions League title. And Manchester United's need for a centre-back has only got more pronounced as the campaign has progressed and Jose Mourinho is still desperate to see a dominant stopper signed. But will Manchester United's board sanction a move? Okay, guys, we're going to start with a man under pressure, Julian Lopetegui at Real Madrid. He's had a pretty poor start to life at the Bernabeu. Duncan, what's happening there? Where's it all gone wrong for the manager? I Well, in many ways it's gone wrong. I think... Um... I think the key element is has been he's inherited the job at a terrible time um, when uh, Florentino Perez had, had made the decision to let the the best player in Real Madrid's history um, and the best footballer in in recent Champions League history, all all time leading scorer in the Champions League, and a guy who's contributing over a goal a game, um, I think for eight nine years of his uh, Real Madrid career, um, go to a, a direct. Uh, rival in the Champions League, so you don't want to be the manager who has to come in um, and sort out a, a situation like that when Cristiano Ronaldo leaves. Um, you might have Gareth Bale there, but I think we've seen just in these early weeks that Gareth Bale will not um, be the, the correct substitute for Cristiano Ronaldo, and, and that really shouldn't surprise anyone if you look at the two um, careers side by side. What's more important is that Madrid... Um, are telling everyone that they've made a decision um, to dispense with Lopetegui. Um, the guidance has been that he'll remain in, in charge uh, for the Champions League match this week and for uh, the Classico, um, and then will be replaced uh, after that. Um, they've started approaching um, candidates to succeed him. Um, I get, get, did a lot of work on this yesterday. I got very kind of contradictory information from good sources. Um, there was one version of events that Santiago Solari, uh, the Madrid uh, B-team coach, was going to be promoted um, to replace Lopetegui, um, with the idea being a kind of holding operation, in the same way as they did when they put Zidane in charge um, after Rafa Benitez had made a, a, a mess of his um, opportunity to, to manage the club, um, i.e. so Solari till the end of the season. Um, if he did really well, then he would have a chance of retaining the position. But the strategy would be to get a, a better, stronger candidate in the summer and give themselves lots of time to secure him. Um, obviously, Mauricio Pochettino would be top of that list because he was the guy Florentino Perez wanted to hire last summer who wanted to come to the club, um, but was blocked um, by Daniel Levy, as we, we you know, 
um, described in great detail during the summer. Now, the other version of events is that, um, that Florentino Perez has, has kind of politically gone along with a, with a camp um, inside Madrid who want to see Solari promoted um, because it, it, um, it keeps things calm internally, but actually he's looking for a more experienced replacement. Um, I've been told uh, reliably that there has been um, an approach to Antonio Conte. Um, I'm also told that uh, there are at least three other um, senior candidates for the role, those being Arsene Wenger, um, Leonardo Jardin, who's um, just been dismissed by Monaco, but had a, a fantastic season in the Champions League uh, two seasons ago there, um, and Laurent Blanc, who's um, available at present. Um, Perez's thinking, I'm, as it's described to me, is that he feels the dressing room has got out of control. Um, obviously, Zidane was credited for winning the Champions League by being the kind of the, the, the football whisperer, as, uh, as our friend Graham Hunter likes to describe him, and, and keeping a dressing room of, of um, serious talents um, motivated enough to, to keep winning the Champions League. But now with Lopetegui in, who doesn't have that persona, um, it's descended into... Um, if not chaos, certainly a, a sequence of very bad results. So Perez is thinking is he needs a strong man manager. And obviously, if you want a strong man manager, then Antonio Conte has um, a lot going for him because that is his reputation. That is the way he works. I can tell you that Antonio Conte would absolutely want that job if it was offered to him um, under the right conditions. I, I, he might even be prepared to compromise in, in the sense of taking the job on with a... Uh, uh, for the rest of the season with a break clause and, a, and another um, year of contract. But that is uh, the position he has long wanted in European football. He sees Madrid as being the club that um, can give him the platform to win the Champions League for the first time, which is his biggest ambition in football and is, is um, what he feels he needs to do to prove himself to be an absolute um, top-level manager. Um, whether Perez is prepared to take the risk of putting him in that dressing room is open to question. Um, I, as of as of the last um, you know community checks I did on this, uh, a decision hadn't been made, um, and obviously Perez has given himself time by leaving Lopetegui in with a plan of leaving Lopetegui in charge for the Clasico to talk to the candidates and decide what's the best option going forward. Let's be clear that the um, appointment and the, the manner of the appointment of uh, of Julian Lopetegui was shambolic, absolutely shambolic uh, from start to finish. Uh, obviously, uh, Lopetegui was in charge of the Spain national team at the World Cup uh, and then was sacked by them because of what was seen as betrayal. He then had to go back to a dressing room and a uh, group of players who had seen the chaos uh, around the national team. Um, and try and persuade them that he was the man to take, you know, the most prestigious club in the world forward. Now, Lopetegui's skill, if you like, um, in guiding the Spain national team in the way he did was to marry together two tribes, the Barcelona players and the Madrid players who comprise most of um, that particular national team squad, as we know. Uh, he then had to go back to a dressing room where characters like Sergio Ramos, um, are absolutely 
not quite, I would say in control, but certainly the kind of ego and personality which insists upon himself being um, a leader, both on and off the pitch. And I think that when you get poor results, then players, and I've said this many times on the podcast, look for excuses and they will point the finger at anyone but themselves. It's very, very rare that happens. Um, so you've got a new coach who hasn't managed at this level before in club football. You've also got uh, a group of players who are, by reputation, one of the most difficult dynamics to try and manage because of the ego, because of the um, reputation, because of the elite level at which they play and have played for many years. Because look at that squad and you see a group of players who, which is you know, probably the most decorated potentially in the history of any club uh, in football. So it's not really that surprising when you combine that with the sale of Cristiano Ronaldo. Remember that when football, I don't care if it's your local Sunday Park team or it's Real Madrid, if a decision is made which the players believe is detrimental to them, their, their dressing room, i.e. to leave out a player, whether it's dropping him to the bench because of a, an issue or whether it's selling him to another club, they feel that gives them an excuse to not do as well as they usually do. So if they do drop a goal or a point or a two points here, they will say, it's not our fault, they should have sold Cristiano. Now, that's what's happened at Madrid, and they're hemorrhaging points and hemorrhaging goals. And what they need now is what Duncan says, is a strong leader, someone who knows how to manage those egos, those reputations. I think Conte, I'm not sure he's the man. Uh, from what I've heard from Chelsea players, his first year at Chelsea was great because he came into a, a team that was low on morale, who had finished poorly, weren't even playing any European football at all that first season. Therefore, he had time on the training ground Monday to Friday to prepare them for games, which they then went out and they won well. And of course, they won the Premier League title in his first season there. After winning the title in his first season, he came under pressure in terms of Champions League football, in terms of winning the title again. He fell out with players. Uh, he fell out with um, Marina Gravskaya, uh, the, the erstwhile managing director at Chelsea in terms of transfers. As I said, he felt he'd earned the, the right to choose to buy players. That's not what happens at Chelsea. Well, forgive me if I'm wrong here, but I think Real Madrid is the club, historically, that doesn't allow the manager to buy players. So given what we know about him at Chelsea and why he fell out with them, I agree with Duncan. Yes, he's desperate for his job and he would be willing to compromise on stuff like that in order to get the Real Madrid post, but there will come a time when you know his natural traits will come to the surface. He will have arguments with people like Sergio Ramos, Marcelo, um, and he will uh, debate and uh, be divided with regards to what um, Florentino Perez wants um, in, in terms of incoming transfers or outgoing transfers and what he wants. For me, I think Arsene Wenger, someone who Perez has offered the job to on three occasions in the last 15 years, and those are just the ones I know about, um, would be, I think, a better candidate to take them to the end of the season. He walks into the dressing room, gets respect. And of course, just like Conte, the one trophy missing from Wenger's CV is the Champions League. How, well, what better club to go to than the one that is the most decorated in that competition's history? So Wenger and Madrid, for me, are a perfect fit. Um, this is what Madrid do. They sack a, a coach who they put faith in, early in the season or because of results, they then bring in a caretaker who's much more seasoned, older, someone who um, 
is, if you like, a diplomat, someone who can build bridges between the players, between the players and the administrative staff and the president, and someone who the fans will see as, if you like, uh, an improvement on the guy that they've just sacked. So, um, look, I know for a fact that Wenger's got an offer from uh, Chinese club Guangzhou Evergrande, but he's hedging his bets. And I think Wenger, right now, being free and available at any point to come in, is absolutely, uh, you know, if not the top candidate, certainly one of the top two, along with Conte. Um, although they will have um, some competition, I, I suspect, quite quickly from Bayern Munich, where, as we know, Kovac is kind of on his last legs as well. So it's one of those things whereby who gets there first? Um, very happy to say I'm attending the Classico in the camp now this weekend with my son. Um, and it'll be intriguing to see uh, how things pan out with regards to uh, that game. Because if they take a, a, a real... Uh, shooing in the camp now, then, you know, the guy who's coming in next might want to think twice about what he's getting himself into. Um, so, Ian, should we be adding you to that list of candidates? Um, are, you, are, you, are you trying to tell us you're sitting beside Florentino at the weekend? Uh, that would be telling tales. Sorry, Duncan. As you know, and everyone knows, I did once substitute Diego Maradona during a match, so that probably gives me the kind of credentials to deal with Sergio Ramos. It does, and I, and I think um, with Conte, there's one thing we haven't mentioned. Um, if Antonio Conte wants to go to Real Madrid and play the same uh, setup as he did to win the title at Chelsea, i.e. A, a back five with um, two guys... Uh, acting as sentries in, in front of the centre-backs, uh, wingers coming back to defend and uh, and a big burly forward uh, kicking the opponents when they've got the ball. That's not going to go down well with Real Madrid fans and it's not going to be a, a, a recipe for long-term success there. So Conte would not only have to adapt and, and what you point out, um, but his demands uh, in the transfer market, he'd also have to adapt the football he's used um, to win his last title in England. I guess uh, to wrap this one up, Johnny, we all expected a massive splurge in the transfer market from Real Madrid last summer. Reports uh, in Spain from very reliable newspapers and, and top journalists on those papers said there was a budget of around £350 million. What did we get? Nothing, really. You know, really not a lot, not, no, no money spent by you know, the standards of elite clubs. Which suggests to me that a they had they one they didn't really know Zidane was gonna what he was gonna do whether they quit or not obviously a lot of rumours about it he did quit they didn't know who they were gonna get in so they went for the you know effectively what became a a very soft candidate um, who's now proven that with the results so if they've got all that money waiting to be splashed they've got the stadium redevelopment which uh, is is going to be starting very soon they need a strong someone strong and I reckon that. What Duncan said at the top of this conversation with regards to Pochettino, someone younger, someone with drive, someone with proven ability to manage. Not one trophy is true, but who plays the kind of football that Real Madrid fans want and aspire to. Um, and with a budget as big as 300 million plus, you know, what could Pochettino do with that? I mean, this is a guy who got no players last summer. And so I think that the way that Madrid will resolve this, they will appoint a temporary can, uh, manager with a break clause until the end of the season and all that time they will use to talk to, to um, serenade and make sure they get the right guy, in my eyes, and Duncan's Pochettino, and get him to plan the transfer spend for next season. And it will be a fait accompli come next June when Pochettino leaves from Madrid and he already knows which players he's buying, which players he's getting. 
and that way the club go forward and on the footing that, that they need to as a club of their stature. Yeah, it should it should be noted. I, I think you, you make a good point about no transfers or no um, significant transfers in the summer under Lopetegui. I don't think that would have happened if Mauricio Pochettino came in, and I think that's one of the reasons the money wasn't spent. It's it was being held um, with the idea that they still wanted Pochettino as coach. Lopetegui was obvi- obviously a a stand-in um, and a, and not even a second choice um, from the start. Uh, one other factor we should we should um, add here, given that we talked about it recently, is Eden Hazard wants to go to Real Madrid, uh, is pushing to get that move to Real Madrid. There's definite interest from Real Madrid. Um, it's not going to help uh, that scenario of Antonio Conte's, the manager there, given the relationship those two um, had um, during the end of their, their time at Chelsea. So that's another thing that will be a factor in the decision-making at Madrid at the moment. And Johnny, here's the headline. Pochettino to replace Wenger. The Champions League begins in earnest again this week. We've got a number of important ties coming up. And Pep Guardiola yesterday was in a press conference and was pretty challenging in his uh, assertions to the Manchester City fans about how they should be backing his side. I quote... One important thing to win this kind of title is you have to be pushed, not just by the manager, by everyone surrounding Manchester City, that we have to win it. And we don't have that feeling. That feeling that the fans are pushing, that we have to win the Champions League. In this competition, you need something special, but I still don't feel it. Ian, what are City fans supposed to make of this and how do they react? I think think any football fan, Johnny would feel, I don't know, I, I wouldn't go as far as say insulted, but certainly a little bit sullied um, by those kind of comments from, uh, you know, a manager of Pep Guardiola's experience and um, and history. I mean, this is a guy who's managed two of the biggest clubs in the world in Barcelona and, and Bayern Munich, where we know how passionate the fans are there. Uh, I don't see anything wrong with the, the fan base at Manchester City. I think they're they're very passionate about their club and their team. And um, I wonder if there's some kind of, um, you know, another agenda here because City have failed to make any real impression in the Champions League under the Abu Dhabi regime. And we know that they covet the Champions League and they covet being um, the ownership of a club which is anointed and crowned effectively kings of of world football, given that the Champions League is the, the blue ribbon competition in uh, world club football. So it seems strange to me um, that he has taken a divergent view. Um, although when you look at the fact that he has had the most money to spend on transfers, the, the wage bill at Manchester City is burgeoning. Um, they are you know, currently one of the best teams to watch, certainly in the world, and they're top of the Premier League, as we know, um, scoring goals for fun, as they did last weekend again. It just seems to me like Either Guardiola is making an excuse or he's playing down expectations, um, maybe both in terms of what happens in the Champions League. Uh, they had a bad result, obviously, against Lyon um, before. And look, I, I think back to um, Chelsea and under sort of Abramovich for you know more than 10 years uh, um, until they won the Champions League. Uh, sorry, just under 10 years in 2012. Uh, and the amount of 
times they got to semi-finals and just fell short, or quarter-finals, or you know, odd sort of results going against them, etc., etc. And then it, when they turned out in the um, uh, Allianz Arena in Munich against the home side Bayern that night in 2012, it was probably the weakest Chelsea starting eleven of that season under an interim manager as well. And yet they went out and beat Bayern Munich in penalties, a German team on penalties. Now, what was the difference between that Chelsea team and the Manchester City team now? Well, they had several Premier League titles, FA Cups, League Cups under, under various managers. Probably they had a mentality which was stronger because they didn't feel themselves to be the underdog anymore. And I think maybe the mentality amongst, not all, but some of Manchester City's players is that they haven't quite done it at the very highest level, whether it be with club or country. They've never won the Champions League. Um, there's obviously a couple of World Cup winners, but you know they, they need to get themselves over that mental line. And I think Guardiola, as a coach, smells that in his dressing room. And so either, as I said, he's playing down expectations to take the pressure off his players, or he's deflecting attention by talking about the fans <clears throat> in order that he hopes he can coach those players into being the kind of uh, that mentality which will get them over the line and win the Champions League. But I'm still doubtful that they are the team that are going to win this season. Look, I have a degree of sympathy with, with Pep Guardiola here um, because... Don't it's tell def- Josie. It's, it's, definitely the, it's definitely the case that it's very hard for a club to win the Champions League for the first time. It, Manchester City don't have the history of winning it. They don't have the, the presence of having won it before. And these things count in the Champions League. You, you just look at the, the record, uh, the, the list of, of previous winners. It makes a difference. What you say about the experience in the team is also correct. Um, and one of the reasons why, for example, Guardiola wanted to sign Dani Alves um, last, uh, last summer, the summer before last, because he wanted a guy who knew what it took to get over the line in the hardest competition of all. And Danny had uh, has more trophies than than any other current player, um, and uh, the personality to be a leader in the dressing room. So he was thinking of signing him alongside Cal Walker, uh, with the idea of sharing the games between them, um, with with Danny Alves being preferred for the more important games. That was that was the strategy, and he lost him to PSG because um, Neymar insisted that Danny Alves come along as as part of the deal because he was he was mates with Danny. So those two things are definitely um, against them and have to be overcome. It's definitely the case that Manchester City don't sell out their Champions League games um, most of the time. So he's, the atmosphere in the stadium isn't as good as, as it should be. And, that, and Manchester City fans have a, a, a grudge um, against UEFA because of the financial fair play uh, penalties they received several years ago. And I, they're the only club that I know of that whistle uh, the Champions League anthem before matches, and you know that might be they might be minor things, but it does. I can see where Guardiola is complaining about uh, a lack of presence in the stadium for key matches, and and as all these top coaches say, little details make a difference in the Champions League. However, he has got the most expensive squad in the history of the game, almost a billion pounds committed, a billion euros committed to transfer fees to the current squad alone. He's had just about everything he's asked for from the owners. He, would, he joined the club specifically 
um, ahead of Manchester United, ahead of other English clubs, because he felt it would be easier to succeed there because he'd have the backing of not only Abu Dhabi, but of the the the, um, the Catalan Spanish um, executive tier he'd worked with previously at Barcelona, so he was working with with known um, entities who he knew would support him, um, and and because Manchester City didn't have that great history, so winning the cha- winning the Premier League for Manchester City would be a huge success because they hadn't won many uh, Premier Leagues, whereas winning the Premier League for Manchester United would be well we've seen that before we go and do it again next year and the year after. Winning the Champions League for Manchester City, he'd be the first person to do it. Huge success. Whereas winning the Champions League for Manchester United, great, but we've done that before. So he picked that job partly because the club had less history and and mainly because he had uh, superior conditions to work. And I think we've seen with Guardiola, since he won the Premier League last season, you you can look at the first interview he gave post-winning, post the end of the Premier League season with Sky, in where I think Gary Neville asked him, very directly next season you have to go for the Champions League and Guardiola immediately tried to deflect away from that saying no um, it's not my priority the most important thing is to win two Premier Leagues in a row that's where my focus will be next season so that contrasts Guardiola always trying to downplay uh, winning the Champions League and repeated this isn't the first time he's talked about the fans being a factor repeatedly complaining about the fans contrast that with Abu Dhabi who made it very clear that what they were disappointed about last season was the performance in the Champions League. Made it very clear that they've, the reason they've put um, billions into this football club is they want to win the European trophy and they want to win it before Qatar and PSG do. So there's, there's pressure internally on Guardiola to succeed. And he's, I think, trying to come up with reasons to excuse what you have to say has been a very bad pattern of results in the competition. You know, he's, he's not been knocked out by superpowers. He's been knocked out by Monaco um, and, and then by Liverpool. So he's been knocked out by teams who had substantially poorer resources on the field. And he's been knocked out because of mistakes he made. Um, strategic decisions, um, being wedded to this one style of playing, which uh, no question worked for him in the Premier League. He set um, a, a number of records deserve praise for the quality of football but what where it hasn't worked yet is in the champions league when he comes up against squads of of close or similar ability but with more football intelligence about them more football experience and also coaches are prepared to adapt their strategy to the circumstances so i mean we we really should pay attention to this because this kind of is the story of the season is how far Guardiola can get in the Champions League because even if he wins the Premier League again and I think he will win the Premier League again even if he sets records again the, the expectation externally they are, they've been the bookmakers favourite for the Champions League and the expectation internally is that he has to deliver in this competition I think the other thing as well Duncan we, we should recognise and discuss is um, you and I have been privileged to watch and speak with and talk football with some of the, the, the great sort of so-called super coaches of certainly our generation over the years. And we know what drives them. What drives them is breaking records, um, both for their clubs and for themselves. We know that only one manager has won the Champions League with three different clubs. And that given the... Uh, it, 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 
consistent and incessant success at domestic league levels of the likes of Guardiola, who has won all but one championship in his entire career um, so far with Barcelona and Bayern Munich, and the likes of Jose Mourinho, <clears throat> who has been uh, a league champion in four different countries as well, that the Champions League has become the kind of the holy grail for the coaches as well as the clubs. Now, I wonder, and it's only me putting it out there, <clears throat> of Guardiola's experience in Germany with Bayern, where he failed on three attempts to win the Champions League with a club who's used to winning the Champions League, with a club who expects to win the Champions League, albeit he was failing in semi-finals, um, has made him feel a little bit insecure about his place in the history of the competition. Obviously, he won it at Barcelona, but hasn't won it since, and in fact has a record of failure, as you've been pointing out both at City and I'm pointing out about Bayern Munich. And I just wonder if even in himself, he feels a little bit of pressure or a lot of pressure put on, on himself. And as I said, a little bit insecure about, well, when's my next Champions League coming? Because it's been quite a long time since I had the, uh, that adrenaline rush of lifting that trophy and feeling like I'm on top of the world. And, you know, so I think what I said about the team mentality, I think is a factor. But I think maybe that extends to the coach now, which is something which I guess a lot of people would say, oh, you're talking rubbish, Magali, which happens often. Not that I talk rubbish, people say that. <laughs> but um, I do wonder that if there's something there internally with Guardiola, that I, he, he has something I, to prove I, to himself. I agree with you entirely. And, and I, what I would cite as evidence is the excellent um, book from his, his uh, first year at, at Bayern, Pep Confidential, where he allowed a, a journalist to shadow him um, for for the year there, and if you read that book, there's a there's a recurrent theme of um, Pep's self doubt and his questioning of of the way he's working. He's not um, he's not a guy who uh, works on unbridled confidence. He doubts his methods and he doubts his technique, and 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 that has worked in his favour in that he's um, he's adapted uh, his, his managerial style at times to to improve and and get further success. But I, I, I have no question that it will be playing on his mind that um, his status in the game is, is every year he fails to win the Champions League with such massive resources as he's had at Bayern Munich at Manchester City erodes a little bit of that um, mythology. I, I think it's a bit and the legacy like, as well, Duncan. The legacy certainly, um, uh, and that this you know the, the the aura around him as being the greatest coach in the world. Duncan, we've talked for, well, it feels like a long, long time on this podcast about Manchester United's need for a new centre-back. Uh, that's going back months and months, and they're still looking, aren't they? Can you give us some news on Manchester United going out there to purchase someone in the January transfer window? Yeah, Josie Mourinho obviously um, went to war with the Manchester United board in the summer. Um, over the need to sign an experienced centre-back. He didn't get one, and the, the fallout of that war is still being felt in in, uh, in the dressing room and in team performances um, and, and in the reporting around the club. Um, he hasn't given up on his desire to uh, strengthen in that area, and he's working at present to convince the board um, to bring someone in in January uh, to, to give him um, that leader in the centre of the defence that he he feels is essential, um, not only to improve Manchester United defensively, but to give him more scope to play in an attacking fashion. 
because he, he he's always worried and against the better teams about overexposing his defense because he, he feels like there's always a danger they'll concede goals as they did at Tottenham um, in a game they were dominant on the break or as they did at Chelsea at the weekend from a from a stupid um, set piece marking mistake um, there's what I'm told is that there's a, a, a kind of conflict there in that Manchester United have scouting department have provided a list of, of players that they propose um, for the position and Mourinho's not been um, convinced that uh, that list is a good one he's done some scouting himself so he went um, to watch uh, Serbia's uh, UEFA um, Nations League uh, tie against um, Montenegro a couple of weeks ago um, in order to run the, the rule over Nikola Milinkovic, the Fiorentina centre-back, who is actually a good example, I think, of, of the problem, uh, the tension between the club, because Milinkovic is um, generally considered to be a top centre-back in the making. But he's only just turned 21. Um, limited experience of Serie A football yet. Um, people who I've spoken to know him think his best course would be to spend another, at least another season in Serie A, probably two before moving to the Premier League, because it's it's such a hard ask to switch leagues as a centre back at that age, and even more of a hard ask when you're expected to be an immediate starter, and still harder when you're expected to lead a defence, which is what's required here, and harder still when that defence is Manchester United's. So, good player, but doesn't fit the criteria um, Mourinho's looking for. One of the players he um, has on his own list is Kaladu um, Kulabai at Napoli, who I think anyone who's, who's watched him play, um, particularly if you watched um, a great example would be the match against Liverpool in the Champions League recently. He does have those characteristics of being a leader. He's physically strong. He's also very good in the ball. Um, initiating play from defence, which is a, another thing that Mourinho would like to have in his new centre-back. I'm told there's, it would be hard to get him. He's just signed a new contract at Napoli, but the player himself is interested in moving um, to the Premier League. Uh, would be interested, obviously, in, in the pay rise involved in moving to the Premier League, as well as the opportunity of playing in a new division and for a, for a club of more stature than Napoli. Um, the difficulty would be, in particular, getting him out in January and it uh, would require a very high transfer fee. And of course, we know that Manchester United's board are not willing to pay very high transfer fees unless it's for, uh, well, by Woodward's own um, briefing, the, the top, top player in the position. So he'd, he says he'd spend over £100 million in Rafael Varane, but that's um, Cloud Cuculan thinking uh, whether he'd be prepared to go to for example, 80 million that Napoli might ask for Kulabai in the January window. I have serious doubts because Kulabai doesn't have the um, the marketing presence that um, a Varane, World Cup winner Varane, would ever have. One of the other problems I think that Mourinho faces with regards to recruitment um, is the negativity around Manchester United right now um, for all the reasons we know um, regarding performances and infighting in both in the dressing room and between the dressing room and the boardroom. And then, let's just face it, you know, if you're Rafael Varane, for, for example, and you look at the Premier League table right now, Manchester United are 10th. They have teams above them in Bournemouth, Watford, Everton and Wolves. After nine games, 14 points, that's seven behind second place and nine behind joint top Man City and Liverpool with a goal difference 
of minus one. This is not Manchester United of old that we that you know we've come to expect, challenging on all fronts, scoring goals for fun, um, being a team who uh, you know live up to the reputation of like one of the, the biggest or one of the biggest two clubs in the world. Now, I think blame lies in different places. Um, and it's certainly not all got to do with Josie Mourinho. But the starting centre-backs on Saturday at Stamford Bridge were Victor Lindelof and Chris Smalling, two players who have repeatedly let themselves and the shirt down uh, in the last year and a half. Mourinho was not responsible for recruiting Smalling, but he was for Lindelof, and we don't need to go back over all that stuff again. What he can't have is his £86 million Six foot four central midfielder Paul Pogba losing Ante Rudiger with you know the kind of thing that you would teach kids under eight to make sure they marked their man um, to play school football and then followed by I don't know if uh, anyone noticed a massive tantrum by Pogba who started jumping up and down like a like a toddler in the six yard box claiming that he had been in some way obstructed by his own player. In, in following Rudiger in, which was absolutely not the case. And these problems seem to persist. Um, I mean, Duncan said on Twitter about how, you know, you, with, with Pogba, you get the moments of brilliance, but also the moments of, of freakish uh, mediocrity um, with regards to situations like that. So you get you effectively give Chelsea a one-goal lead. And then tactically, Mourinho does what Mourinho does. He did it against Newcastle United uh, two weeks earlier tactically changes the setup, changes um, the way the team are playing to play differently against Chelsea and then establish a 2-1 lead, only again to find that really poor defending at a set piece, they concede an equaliser late into added time. Now, this is what is a, the, the biggest problem with Manchester United right now is, is not necessarily the feuds or the board or anything else. It's about getting that team playing the way that they should be playing, the way that they play when Anthony Martial scores two great goals to put them two and up at Stamford Bridge, um, the way that they come back in the space of sixty minutes to beat Newcastle having been two 0 down. That's what's the biggest. That's the biggest problem, the biggest challenge for Jose Mourinho right now. Admittedly, getting a new central defender in January would be a big help to him, but he needs the backing of of Ed Woodward and the Glazers to do that. And I think that results right now. Um, are basically making them ask more questions than they, than they think Mourinho's giving answers. Um, I disagree with you on one point, uh, which is the tactical change. I think uh, Mourinho actually set his team out cleverly against Chelsea, um, high press when they had the ball uh, in the, near their own area because he knows Chelsea are susceptible making mistakes there. And then as soon as they shifted it forward to, to drop deep to prevent space for the, the Chelsea midfielders to, to run behind into, um, which is blocking off the way Chelsea have been creating and scoring goals this season. And it's kind of, we, we talked about it in the podcast last week. And um, as usual, Mourinho came up with a plan, which I think was a good one. Um, it, it was the implementation of um, standard, as you say, uh, set-piece defending that, that cost them the goal. They went out second half and, and stuck to the plan and they got a goal and got another goal um, and then lost to another set-piece situation in, in the final minute. I think you're absolutely right that um, results uh, are a great concern to Mourinho. 
he, when there was a meeting between Edward Wood and George Mendes a couple of weeks ago, it was made clear that the club didn't want to sack him, that they supported the, him as manager, that they felt he'd done a good job in the two seasons he'd been there, but results had to improve. Um, and, and Mourinho is very aware that he needs results, not, not just to keep the board on site when there clearly are some doubts there, um, but also to keep uh, the media away from him, to keep this air of general negativity that surrounds the club. Um, he knows every time result goes against him, he will be the subject and the discussion will be Manchester United should sack him. I mean, we've, we've discussed uh, about solutions and uh, on this podcast several times, I don't think sacking is is the way to go. Um, so it, it's all it all be all very well to say the results aren't good enough um, where they are in the league. They're not. The position isn't good enough. But do you sack the manager, bring someone else in, and expect them to turn around? Uh, I, there's absolutely no guarantee of that. And the manager has um, turned. Uh, the Newcastle game around and was very unfortunate not to beat Chelsea, who have been one of the the darlings of the Premier League so far this season at the weekend. So it's not that the players aren't performing for them. Um, there, the, there is a, a path back to where um, they've been in the previous season, but it's not an easy situation for sure. Um, and yeah, the Juventus game this week is is a, a point of possible. Fracture the Everton game is a point of possible fracture, and I think you're absolutely right. When Manchester United are in this situation, um, the top players are going to look at it and uh, and have at least a third thought about moving to United. United still are always going to be an attractive club. They have the financial wherewithal to sign players, but if it's the manager who's uh, approaching you um, to come to the club and sign you out and setting up that deal in the background, and there's clear um, and repeated reporting that the manager is on the edge of being dismissed, then any footballer is going to look at that situation and ask some questions about whether they want to commit to that path. So, yeah, it does make things more difficult for him in many ways. Ian, one of the big talking points of the game, which it would be remiss of us to ignore, was, of course, the touchline Barney that took place right at the end. What was your take on that? Well, it's not something that's unusual in football. Um, many over the years and many more serious than the one that we saw um, at Stamford Bridge last weekend. I'd say that Mourinho is more the, the sinner against than sinner. I, I think that Marco Yanni, uh, who apparently was not even allowed to be in the technical area, um, or not certainly not supposed to be there, has uh, not provoked him just once but twice, uh, in terms of the way he ran past, I think, knocked a water bottle away and then came back and said something, obviously, which uh, offended Mourinho uh, and made him get up. And I think with Mourinho, look, it's a very emotional situation for him. He's at Stamford Bridge. He's, had, he's actually had some abuse from a certain section of the Chelsea fans, which I just do not understand. The guy who's brought them three Premier League titles and numerous cup success who is revered by the vast majority of the support, regardless of that he's not Manchester United. I don't get that. And I think he was wound up. And like, you know what? It doesn't matter who you are. If you lose a goal in the third minute of added time in a massive game where you, you came back from one behind and literally you're going to win and your job's on the line and everyone's focused on you, to respond in the way he did, I think, well, one was completely natural and was uh, uh, instinctive for Mourinho. He's a fighter. 
He's he's not you know he's not a he, when you talk about fight or flight, Mourinho never runs away from the fight. So he's I, I think it looked worse than it was because the stewards got involved in everything else. Um, it doesn't mean so there won't be any FA action both for Chelsea and for for Mourinho potentially. But I'd say in this case, I have sympathy with Mourinho. I think I think you've got to credit um, Maurizio Sarri for the way he uh, he recognised um, that his assistant had had um, was the the guy in the wrong and had initiated the problem and went about um, ensuring that he apologised and which allowed Mourinho and let's let's be clear Mourinho uh, was very diplo- diplomatic about it after the match but I think he was aware that having been charged uh, with um, uh, swearing under his breath into a camera in Portuguese uh, and facing a touchline ban for that, he didn't need another FA charge um, (laughs) following a game in which he was only allowed on the touchline because he'd asked for more time uh, to appeal against the the charge on on swearing into the camera. Um, So I think he was strategic in in saying, I accept the apology and making it clear that the, the the incident was at, at an end for him. And, and again, in his Champions League press conference on a Monday night, um, actually interrupting um, a journalist to uh, to say that he hoped that Iani wouldn't uh, suffer any more um, serious uh, censure from his club because there's been talk of him being dismissed by Chelsea and, and saying he felt that was was over the top and unfair on a, on a, a young coach. So he, he's gone out of his way to try, try and publicly pacify the situation. Um, and I, I, I have to say, I think the FA have been sensible in that uh, they have decided not to charge Mourinho um, over that incident. The charge is only to Iani. Um, they sent a letter to Manchester United to um, remind them of uh, the behaviour that's expected in these circumstances. And I think the FA have actually been sensible there, unlike, um, as I wrote about in the Daily Record column this weekend, the charge um, over uh, swearing in Portuguese um, into the camera, which took them 10 days to make, uh, required the use of a lip reader and language experts, and, and I think has been roundly condemned in the media as, as being over the top and, uh, and a waste of, of FA time um, when... You know, for for many reasons, one of which is we see when do you not see a football match when you when uh, the managers or the, the players or, or or all of them um, are swearing either at referees or at each other. Um, it's 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 a standard part of of yeah. football. And I I long for the day, Duncan, when you know that wonderful phrase we get from people who are presenting the courage of a football match say. Uh, when something's been caught on microphone, camera, etc., in the fans or tunnel or on the pitch, whatever, we'd just like to apologise for anyone who was offended by what they may have heard during that last segment. I want to hear someone apologise in Portuguese for what people <laughs> might have heard during that segment. I long for that what, day. What Portuguese lip readers might have? <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah, any Portuguese lip readers who may may well have been offended by that. We're sorry, and, and I'm doing this in Portuguese. So you understand. (laughs) Okay, well, we're going to move on now to the quickfire round. And today we're going to look at the top six in the Premier League at the end of the season. Will these six clubs be top four or boss out the door? We know how cutthroat it is and how fine the margins are at this elite level. So we're going to start with you, Ian. 
Spurs, top four or boss out the door? Both. <laughs> In this case. Yeah, I'm not sure actually about top four. I'm being a little bit kind of um uh sort of a task on there. Um I think Spurs are fifth place right now, although obviously joint third on points with Chelsea and Arsenal, but the fact that it's their best start ever in the Premier League era and they still aren't top suggests to me that they're not quite good enough. They obviously didn't recruit in the summer. I think Pochettino, I think, is distracted by both the um, the Real Madrid situation last summer and the one that we've discussed at the top of the podcast today. If they make top four, I won't be surprised, but Pochettino out the door to Real Madrid, I would say, is boss out the door. Duncan, the game we're playing is top four, boss out the door. What game are you playing this week? I'll tell you once I start. <laughs> Chelsea. Chelsea, I think, have... Um problem because uh, at the weekend uh, a, a way of playing against them was demonstrated um, a tactical setup that worked against them and usually these days enough other Premier League teams pay attention to that, copy and implement there's also some fascinating um, statistics on um, how many clear cut chances have been created against Chelsea this season and how many have actually gone in the net and, and the differential from Chelsea to Liverpool to Man City is immense um, and there is an argument, you know, people have seen those statistics and responded saying, oh, but that's because we've got an 80 million euro uh, goalkeeper in and, and he's been saving us. Actually, he's only saved one of those, uh, I think it's 17 or 18 clear-cut chances have been missed by opponents against Chelsea. So I think their position is deceptive. Uh, I think uh, Sari is going to be seriously tested when he gets into the winter for the first time in the same way that Jurgen Klopp was because he doesn't rotate players a lot. He plays a high-intensity game. Um, I think it's going to be tough for them uh, when they hit December, January. Um, tired players um, and slightly poorer pitches. Poorer pitches are such a big factor in the Premier League these days. Um, so I think they might miss the top four um, this season. I, it depends how other teams respond, but I think their position at the moment is slightly deceptive, and they're actually only level on points with Arsenal or Tottenham for all uh, for all the um, the good publicity they've had so far, and, and the fact that they remain unbeaten. And do you think uh, coming outside the top four would uh, result in Sari losing his job? I think Sari will be sacked this time next year. I think he'll survive one season, um, and then, as often happens with. Roman Abramovich, they'll get bored of him in the second season and uh, and uh, the dismissal will happen then. Okay. Um, Ian, Manchester City. So I was just picking my job off the table there. Uh, Duncan, <laughs> Duncan's remarkable uh, prediction of Sarri being sacked uh, a year from now. Um, I'll tell you what, Dun I, I respect your opinion. I'm going to get on Betfair market right now and uh, and, and certainly oppose Sarri's... Bet again, but... <laughs> <laughs> So it's Manchester City, uh, definitely top four, definitely not manager at the door. Very simple on that one, I think. Uh, Johnny, it's you know Pep's earned himself um, with a Premier League title the right to continue even if he doesn't uh, get back to back. Uh, I think Champions League will be the major factor in deciding his fate, and indeed even as we know from Pep, uh, historically, whether he wants to carry on in the project as they like to call it at Manchester City. So um, I'd say yes uh, to uh, to um, top four and no to out the door. Duncan, Liverpool. Yeah, I think um, I think Liverpool are a good bet for top four. 
Um, I don't see them uh, taking the title off Manchester City unless City get hit by um, serious injury. Um, but you can see the improvements. Or a plague of locusts, Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> Said from Qatar. Some kind, some kind of biblical thing. Um, I think it's, it's easy to see where Liverpool have improved. They're, they're, uh, they're much better in defence. They've got better personnel. Uh, he's, uh, Klopp has got more players to choose from. His strikers aren't in, at the same level as last season. He's playing more conservatively than last season, which I think is uh, actually bodes well for them in that um, it should give them more stamina over the course of the season. But I don't think they're quite uh, good enough uh, to uh, surpass Manchester City. Ian, Arsenal. Most interesting one, I think, of all of our, our candidates, Johnny. Um Obviously, they made it 10 wins in all competitions under Unai Emery with victory over Leicester uh, on Monday night. Um, they played some terrific football um, against you know, a Leicester side who are fairly battle-hardened Premier League opponents. Um, uh, and that's not to dismiss their uh, you know, remarkable championship win um, three seasons ago. But uh, Emery said when he came in, it will be evolution, not revolution. And I think maybe the, the, the pedal's on the gas on that one um, from what we've seen so far. Uh, I, I like the way they play. Uh, I, I think they've, I think they're stronger at the back, um, and their goal difference is plus eleven, which you know ranks well with Liverpool and Chelsea, but obviously still way behind Manchester City. Um, I would say that my my money would be on top four, and certainly Emery will be given the chance to continue building at Arsenal. Well, uh, we've picked our top four, but Duncan, if you want to have a wee uh, word on Manchester United and whether or not the boss will be out the door. Ian's picked his top four. We we haven't picked our top four. Well, let's see what you think. Tell us what you think. <laughs> I think it, I think it, it is actually the most pertinent question with Manchester United. I think um, Champions League qualification is of huge importance to the Glazers. So were uh, Mourinho to miss out on qualification for the Champions League, um, then he would be in in serious trouble. So he would have needed. Uh, I, to have won a trophy, F, which would obviously be the FA Cup, more likely than Champions League, or gone very deep into the Champions League to um, to get away with not making it into the top four. Um, and as we've talked about just um, just a few minutes ago, there are so many pressures on the club and there are so many fracture points that I, it is possible that he's gone um, before the end of the season uh, where things to to develop in, in the wrong way at any particular time. However, I still think they are capable of making the top four. I think um, their performances when they've played uh, the bigger teams this season have been good. Um, they deserve to beat Chelsea at the weekend um, and they should have been well ahead of Tottenham um, in the match they played, uh, but ended up with a defeat. So there's the potential to bridge that gap is there. Um, but Mourinho needs a lot of stuff to go in his favour uh, for it to happen. Okay, okay. Right, um, so y y you're not going to definitively say you think boss out the door, but you're you're kind of erring towards that, are you, Duncan? I, I think I would, uh, I would always back a manager of uh, his abilities um, in circumstances like this. And he's only nine games into the season. Uh, they've only played two Champions League matches. Um, as I said, the squad has been responding to him. You know, probably the biggest danger to him has been uh, that 
unsettled individuals in the club, such as Pogba or Martial, were to down tools and uh, force his exit that way. That hasn't happened. So I'll go for, if you're asking me to make a choice, I'll go for top four. Ian, top four or boss at the door, Man United? I would say definitively, if he doesn't make top four, he'll be sacked, Johnny. Boss at the door? Yeah. Okay, okay. Right, well, with that, we're going to slam this particular transfer window shut. Just a reminder, we are looking for a sponsor, so if you like the idea of partnering with one of the UK's best football podcasts and talking directly to our listeners about your brand, get in touch through our social media channels. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own Transfer Window official account at Transfer Podcast, so give us a follow on there. We're trying to build a community on that account, so everyone who follows will get a follow back. If you want to discuss anything with us individually, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane and our pundits are at Duncan Castles and at Garble SG. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review as this helps us reach as many listeners as possible. We'll be back next Tuesday before 3pm. Until next time, thanks for listening.